You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the September 2019 edition of the Editor's Picks. First paper I would like to highlight is entitled Breastfeeding Among Women with Rheumatoid Arthritis Compared with the General Population results from a nationwide prospective cohort study and is by Ince Askin and colleagues. The issue of breastfeeding is important to all women with newborns and particularly in women with rheumatoid arthritis who are frequently on both conventional and biologic disease-modifying drugs. The major objective of this paper was to compare the frequency and duration of breastfeeding in women with rheumatoid arthritis as compared to a general population in the Netherlands. The authors also hope to determine the reason for the discontinuation of breastfeeding in women with RA. So how did they examine this issue? They looked at a total of 249 pregnancies from 216 different women who were prospectively followed over a seven-year period. The authors collected data during the pregnancy, then at four to six weeks, 12 weeks, and 26 weeks postpartum. They found that the frequency of breastfeeding, as expected, decreased over time from a high of 43% at four to six weeks following delivery to only 9% at 26 weeks. These numbers were significantly lower than those found in the general population, which was 63% at four to six weeks and 41% at 26 weeks. As expected, the main reason for women to discontinue breastfeeding was to restart medication that they felt was contraindicated during lactation However, greater than 40% of these patients had restarted a medication that was compatible with breastfeeding. Please read this article to see the other reasons for the discontinuing of breastfeeding and whether they were similar in RA patients to the general population. You will also find out the clinical, laboratory, and medication factors associated with not beginning breastfeeding and with discontinuation of breastfeeding. The authors hypothesized why women stop breastfeeding at a higher rate than the general population despite being on medications that were compatible with breastfeeding. The authors also suggest some interventions that may help your postpartum patient begin and or continue to breastfeed. The next article to highlight is entitled Radiographic Progression According to Baseline C-Reactive Protein Levels in and other risk factors in PSA treated with tofacinib or adalimumab, and is by van der Heij and colleagues. The aim of this paper was to evaluate the effect of baseline risk factors on radiographic progression in patients with active psoriatic arthritis treated with tofacinib or adalimumab. This is a sub-study of the Oral Psoriatic Arthritis Trial, acronym OPAL, Broden Trial, which was a 
double-blind phase three trial comparing the efficacy and safety of tofacinib versus adalimumab in patients with active psoriatic arthritis who had an inadequate response to a conventional synthetic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug. A total of 422 patients were randomized to receive 5 milligrams BID of tofacinib, 10 milligrams BID of tofacinib, adalimumab, or placebo. Of these 422 patients, 373 completed the trial. X-rays were taken at baseline and then at 12 months, and they were scored using the Vander High Modified Sharp Score for PSA. Baseline predictors of radiographic progression were analyzed. At month 12, greater than 90% of patients receiving either the two medications, tofacinib or adalimumab, met all radiographic non-progression criteria. The study did not compare progression of active medication to placebo. Please read the paper to find out the rapidity of the effect of the two medications on CRP, which when elevated is associated with radiographic progression in PSA. The authors hypothesized on why baseline CRP was the only factor that was associated with radiographic progression in this study. Next paper to highlight is entitled Rates of Total Joint Replacement in the United States, Future Progressions for 2020 to 2040 using the National Inpatient Sample and is by Singh and colleagues. The background to this paper is that total joint replacement is an excellent procedure for patients with refractory pain and functional limitation as a result of end-stage arthritis of any cause. As a result of many factors, there's now been an increase in the use of total joint replacement each year. Knowing this background, the objective of this paper was to project future total hip and total knee arthroplasty use in the United States through the year 20. 40. The authors received access to the U.S. National Inpatient Sample, NIS, from the years 2000 to 2014. The NIS is a U.S. national database of inpatient discharges from approximately 8 million hospitalizations each year. They then used this data to develop progressions for total primary hip and knee arthroplasty for the next 20 years. They found that compared to the 2014 NIS numbers, the percent increase in projected total annual U.S. utilizations by five-year periods from 2020 to 2040 for primary total hip arthroplasty increased by 34, 75, 129, and 284% respectively, and for primary knee arthroplasty by 56, 110, 182, and 401% respectively. Now, this is not the first article to project future utilization of these procedures. Please read this article to see how these projections compare to other 
previously published projections, and how the authors delineate both the strengths and limitations of the study. Non-U.S. practitioners can determine how well these projections reflect projections in their own country. I now completely switch the focus to a topical paper on the subject, which has now been increasingly prevalent, at least in North America. The paper is entitled Demographic, Clinical, and Immunologic Correlates Among a Cohort of 50 Cocaine Users Demonstrating Anti-Neutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibodies, and is by Morcos and colleagues. As early as 1996, it was recognized that there was a link between cocaine abuse and autoimmunity. However, it was not until the 2000s that it was noted that cocaine use could be associated with a purpuric rash and a high titer anca. This syndrome coincided with the discovery that levamazole was added to street-level cocaine. Now, it should be remembered that levamazole was removed from the market because of side effects, which included a purpuric rash and the development of positive anchor. Since that time, levamazole adulterated cocaine has been associated with a pulmonary hemorrhage, glomerulonephritis, and the development of antiphospholipid antibodies. It is now so common that the syndrome has acquired its own name, cocaine levamazole associated autoimmunity syndrome, and its own acronym, CLOS. The aim of this study was to characterize the spectrum of clinical and immunological features of CLOS to identify demographic risk factors and to generate new hypothesis regarding its pathogenesis. The authors identified 50 subjects who had CLOS and compared the demographic factors of these 50 individuals to 2,740 cocaine users with a negative ANCA. Please read the article to determine the demographic risk factors associated with the development of CLOS and cocaine users the clinical and laboratory features most prevalent in this cohort of 50 patients, and how the association of ANCA pattern affected the three-year mortality. The authors also hypothesized on the pathogenesis of CLOS. The fifth and final paper to highlight today examines a mechanism leading to gout as, and is entitled, Precipitation of Soluble Uric Acid is Necessary for in vitro activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome in primary human monocytes and is by Alberts and colleagues. Hyperuricemia is associated with increased risk of the precipitation of monosodium urate crystals. These precipitated monosodium urate crystals can then activate human monocytes to secrete the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-1-beta and lead to gouty inflammation. The aim of this paper was to investigate the effects of soluble uric acid and monosodium urate crystals on expression and activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome 
in order to help elucidate the role of hyperuricemia in the pathogenesis of gout. The investigators exposed human monocytes from both patients with gout and controls to short and long-term uric acid exposure and examined activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome and IL-1 beta secretion. Similar studies were also performed on an immortalized human monocyte cell line to further delineate the mechanism. The investigators found that both IL-1 beta secretion and expression of the NLRP3 inflammasome components were increased following exposure to monosodium urate crystals, but not to soluble uric acid. The IL-1 beta production tended to be greater from patients with gout than controls. Please read this paper to find how the authors put these interesting findings into the context of previously reports, and if serum uric acid concentrations correlated with IL-1 production and activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome. I want to thank you all for listening to my review of what I was felt, felt were particularly important articles appearing in the September 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. Please read either the print or the online edition, which can be found at www.jroom.org. If you have any comments on this summary or any articles appearing in the journal, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. I hope you will listen next month to the editor's picks for the October 2019 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology.